0: two mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 11th of January 2021 and this is episode 190. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to author Dr Aaron Pegram, senior historian at the military history section at the Australian War Memorial on the life, career and reputation of General Sir John Monash. Aaron spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Canberra, Australia hi aaron welcome back to the Dispatches podcast could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested
1: in the great war well tom thank you very much for having me back on the podcast it's always an absolute pleasure pleasure to be talking to my uh, my fellow colleagues on the other side of the pond uh this during these you know weird and wonderful times that we find ourselves in um i mean uh, i've probably bored your listeners to death about how i got interested in the first world war previously um but uh i'll do it again let's do it again um uh so uh I came to the First World War. I ended up with the First World War and studying it uh, primarily through family history. Uh, I went to university uh, in New South Wales and with an arts degree. I had a fascination with uh, with history, in particular military history, through family family history. My grandfather had served in the Second World War, uh, and his uncle had been had died during the First World War on the very day that he was born. Uh, Private Albert George Pegram of the Fifty Fifth Battalion, Australian Imperial Force, was mortally wounded in his. First First engagement, first and only engagement on the Western Front during the Battle of Polygon Wood. Uh, a considerably successful action um, that, uh, that of course, resulted in a significant number of Australian casualties, including uh, my great uncle, who is now buried at Lesson Talk Military Cemetery uh, in in Belgium. Um, I um, When I was at university, actually, um, I actually wrote my honours thesis on the impact, the the local impact of Australia's Vietnam War by looking at a, a case study of, in the town of Wagga, Wagga in New South Wales where there's two military bases, one of which accepted national service recruits during the Vietnam War, many of whom were destined for the fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. So um, rather than, uh, you know, Australia's memory of that time is one of, um, you know, waves of public protest against national service and Australia's war in Vietnam. But Wagga, not surprisingly, was very supportive of it because national service and the war in Vietnam was good for the local business. It was a politi- political conservative town. Um, and Like I said, it had, uh, uh, it it was uh, yeah, two military bases, um, and uh, overwhelmingly supportive of, the, of Australia's role in Vietnam. Um, it wasn't. I didn't get to. Um, I didn't get to the First World War until about two thousand and six. Whereupon, I figured that the only way I was going to get a job was until I moved to Canberra, which is the capital here in Australia and where all our national museums and libraries and archives and the Australian War Memorial is located. So I figured that um, that would probably be a good place to start. I worked in a variety of museums around uh, Canberra. Old Parliament House which was the Provincial Parliament House in Australia up until 19, uh, 1988. I worked at the National Museum as a curator for a number of years and then I was uh, finally poached to go work over at the Australian War Memorial as a curator of photographs. By that stage, um, I was able to I was doing a vast quantity of researching into just reading about Australia's role in the First World War particularly the Western Front. I mean, Gallipoli didn't appeal to me because much of what Australians sort of talked about the Australians readily assumed uh, they are all served on the, you know, on, the, on the shores of Gallipoli there It's where the Anzac legend was allegedly born um, But that I really wanted to try and put that into perspective Because I knew a vast quantity of more Australians fought on the Western Front Where they took their greatest casualties And ultimately contributed to the, the main theory of operations In defeating the main antagonist of the war, the Imperial German Army uh, Combining that with work sort of led me to work ultimately as a historian In the military history section which, Where I was located for, for about 13 years I got to work on things such as The, the redevelopment of the memorial's First World War galleries uh, In the lead up to the, the First World War centenary uh, I got to write uh, Edit and, and publish Four books uh, on Australia during The First World War looking at the role Of prisoners of war which is what I've talked about Previously on the podcast um, And these days, uh, oh, and of course I led Battlefield tours on behalf of the Australian War Memorial To the Western Front battlefields For uh, for many years um, And um, these days Days, I'm uh, now taking a different direction. Um, now that the First World War Centenary is behind us, um, I've now moved on to Australia's more recent conflicts, everything ranging from the Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq, and in the current operations against ISIS or Daesh over in northern Iraq and Syria. Um, the memorial is, is currently expanding its galleries. Um, we're expanding our footprint uh, for the first time really since 1941, and um, much of that is going to be dedicated to recent um, operations uh and also to the, the 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 long list of peacekeeping humanitarian operations that Australians have participated in since the Second World War. Um so I find myself these days researching anything and everything about uh, Australia's involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan which is a uh, far far uh, uh, probably is further further away that you could be from Sir John Monash and the trenches of the Western Front. Which
0: leads us to Sir John Monash. I wonder whether we could start by sort of telling us what the legend is around Sir
1: John Monash and why he's import. Sure. Okay. so... So uh, Lieutenant General Sir John Monash uh, was the commander of the Australia Corps in 1918 and, and is probably the best known best known uh, individual Australian uh, associated with First World War. Um, there's probably Albert Jacker, Australia's first Victoria Cross recipient from the First World War, is probably up there with uh, with Monash as one of the superstars uh, of, of the war. But certainly when people think about Australia in the First World War, it ultimately comes back down to Monash and the role that he played uh, in, in leading and in commanding the Australian force during the their significant victories in 1918. More recently, though, uh, and perhaps over the last few decades, um, there's the myth of Monash has been that Monash, who was uh, had German parents and was was Jewish, was an outsider who, uh, throughout the course of his uh, his career on the Western Front, leading up to his command of the Australian Corps, played a pivotal role in the defeat of the Imperial German Army. Um, so much so that some some people have claimed that Monash was the outsider who won the war. So um, bearing in mind that probably Most of the listeners to this podcast are British. Uh, You know, a lot of eye rolling probably going on over there, uh, over in the old country. Um, But certainly not without any matter of uh, elevating Monash and to the the status of of godlike status. My role over the last, uh, particularly during the First World War, has to be look at Monash through an objective lens, not to get carried away with myth, myth and misinformation, and look at Monash, his successes and what he actually brought to the development of tactics, uh, learning and development, and the course and conduct of the fighting on the Western Front in the final years of the First World War.
0: So let's go right back to his background. So where, where was he born and what did he do in
1: his early life up to the First World War? Before I begin, I have to start by saying that Monash is a purely impressive individual with an immense capacity for learning and application of that in whatever trade that he applied it to. Monash was born in, in Melbourne in Victoria, Victoria in, in 1865 to Jewish parents from East Prussia and spent time growing up in the small rural town of Gerildaree in New South Wales just there near the the Victoria-New South Wales border. Um, Relatively humble origins, his father ran a general store in this small country town. Monash claimed to have met the notorious Australian bush ranger Ned Kelly when the gang raided the town when Monash was about 14 years old in February 1879 Um, but there's actually little evidence that this actually occurred. I mean, Monash was actually at boarding school at the time in Melbourne He was certainly a bright student He attended Scotch College in Melbourne where he became duck at the age of 16 He was fluent in German and graduated from the University of Melbourne with degrees in arts and law and a master's in engineering. He then afterwards embarked on a career as a civil engineer and later became an early pioneer in Australia of reinforced concrete construction. So um, Monash is is quite, even from an early age, straight out of the pen, quite an impressive individual. But engineering, his background in engineering gave him an important experience in these large-scale enterprises and certainly put him in good stead for what was later to come in the the fighting on the Western Front. Engineering required organisation, required direction, support of labour and the assembly and maintenance of, of vast quantities of resources. He was able to take a leading role in his profession by becoming the president of the Victorian Institute of Engineers. He was also an active member of the Institution of Civil Engineers in London. Now these made Monash incredibly wealthy. So much so that by August 1914 both he and his wife were the toast of Melbourne society and in the inner swim of business and social affairs. Monash at that time resided in a lavish mansion in Toorak, quite a nice place in, uh, in suburban Melbourne uh, He dined with the governor general And had the luxury car And full compliments of chauffeurs and servants So already we're starting to determine That Monash is somewhat an insider Rather than an outsider um, of, of the legend So we have a look at some of his background And certainly Monash He's not doing it too hard He's a self-made man Monash also enjoyed a lot of success In the, in the citizens' military forces Which pretty much spanned 30 years Before the outbreak of the First World War Most of it was spent in its tech- Technical armed, the Garrison Artillery, where Monash became fascinated with the interplay between technology and weapons development and the change that it could bring to conventional warfare. From 1908, he commanded the Victorian section of the Australian Intelligence Corps and he learned to appreciate logistics while, while pairing interstate troop movements. He attended schools in military science at the University of Sydney and was involved in staff work and preparation for Lord Kitchener's visits to Australia around 1907. And so when Monash is given command of the 13th Infantry Brigade, in 1913, just on the eve of the First World War, he'd really risen to the top of his game even before the outset of the First World War.
0: And then that leads into my next question was um, what obstacles did Monash face in his life? And it appears that he faced very few but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Well, that's that's right. I mean, um, when war is declared in August 1914, um, Monash is made the chief censor for, uh, for the Australian Imperial Force for several weeks after which he's given command of the newly raised 4th Brigade of the Australian Imperial Force. So at that time, um, Australia didn't have a military force that could serve overseas and so uh, we have a citizens military force which is for home defence only there is a small permanent military force again which can't be deployed overseas so the Australian government goes about in creating what's known as the Australian Imperial Force which is uh, forms part of the British Expedition Force the British Army uh, specifically for fighting overseas all drawn for volunteers so Monash is, is, is owing oh, to his skills and experiences it become, is given command of the 4th Brigade now that position is met with some protest, in part because of his German-Jewish heritage. There was a whispering campaign against him in Melbourne, and later, while fighting on Gallipoli, uh, there was rumours in London and Cairo that he'd been arrested and shot as a spy. Um, so, much has been made in recent times of this prejudice and discrimination and bigotry that was aimed squarely at his Jewish heritage. And much of that forms the basis of the idea was Monash was an outsider within the closed ranks of the AIF. And that plays a bit of a central role later on in the war, when after, after Monash is, is given command of the Australian Corps, Monash downplayed his German heritage from that point on. But I think it's really important to remember that it didn't stop him from going from strength to strength, as it did in as he did in every other aspects of his life. So we have a look at his Monash war service. Monash commands Fourth Brigade on Gallipoli throughout the entirety of their campaign. After which he's made commander of the Third Australian Division. Who he's promoted and given command of the Third Australian Division and led it through the fighting at Messines and during the Third Battle of Ypres. And at Messines, Monash sets the benchmark for meticulous. Planning and preparation for which he was made the Knight Commander of the Order of Bath in New Year's Honours list of 1918. That's no small beer at all. And in May 1918, Monash was promoted to Lieutenant General, was made commander of the newly formed or the newly raised Australia Corps, under which uh, both First and Second ANZAC, uh, the Australian divisions that are formed within those uh, within those two corps, are all united under a centralised command. That takes place in November 1917, and in May 1918, uh, Monash is uh, given command. of of the Australia Corps and that's quite significant because it's the first time uh that uh the the uh, a corps, an, an Australian is made corps commander on the western front of course uh, Harry Chauvel is first Australian corps commander having having uh, been given that command in Palestine in 1917
0: Now you've you've alluded to this tour already but what explains his success what to what extent was his character um the root of,
1: of his, his his rise to stardom and what
0: sort of a person was he
1: Well Monash was certainly was no shrinking violet all. Um, and in fact, he was certainly not without his own quirks. Geoffrey Searle, who is Monash's biographer and has probably written the only book one needs to read about Sir John Monash, says this. He says, his chief weakness was his status-hungry craving for publicity and honours and his habit of exaggerating his men's and his own achievements. I think that says a lot about Monash's personality. He was certainly brash, abrupt, and a notorious self promoter So with this, Monash clashed with Charles Bean, who was the Australian official war correspondent who after the war later became the Australian official historian and wrote the, wrote the official history of Australia in the Great War. Bean came to appreciate Monash's outstanding capacity as a commander in 1918, but he held prejudices against what he perceived to be Monash's, you know, quote, Jewish characteristics. And this kind of goes some way in reaffirming, reaffirming the, the outsider myth that Monash was an outsider, and certainly it clocks Bean uh, and Bean has been criticised as being something of an anti-Semite. Bean certainly disliked Monash's showmanship, flavour disregard for censorship, but he also suspected Monash worked deviously behind the scenes for promotion and was subservient to the Commander-in-Chief, Sir Douglas Hay, who in all, in, who in all honesty actually held Monash in, in high regard. Bean was sure that Monash was so ambitious for glory that the lives of his troops could not be safely entrusted to him. And thus, in the end, Bean was misguided enough to um, plot against Monash with Keith Murdoch, the influential journalist, in the hope that Monash may be replaced with the man they felt was better suited to lead the Australia Corps, who was or Bruno White, in turn, Monash didn't think much of Bean. He in fact, called him a mediocre war correspondent who he thought had failed in his public relations function in celebrating the Australian achievements on the Western Front. Monash described Bean's, fight- Bean's account of the fighting at Messines the, the hypothesis of banality. Um, it doesn't get more, more harsh than that. <laughs> As a corrective, and certainly to assure his own place in history, after the armistice, Monash spends a lightning two um, a lightning two months in London writing um, his his book, The Australian Victories in France in nineteen 19- which kind of laid the groundwork for the popular narrative of Monash, the war winner. And it was published in 1920 to much acclaim, some two decades before Bean was able to complete his 12-volume history of Australia in the Great War. Now, according to historian A. G.
0: P. Taylor, Monash was the only general of creative originality produced by the First World War. To what extent was this true?
1: Uh, Well, that that quote comes from A.J.P. Taylor's book, The First World War, in 1963. And I think that's the real sort of clincher here. Because Taylor... is reflecting the the 1960s view of the First World War leadership in some respects as the you know the the brave um, the brave lions of, of the of your, your English and Australian perhaps um, infantry being led to led by by the donkeys the lions led by donkeys sort of um, philosophy. Um, scholarship has moved on since a little bit since then, especially um, the works of, of scholars such as Gary Sheffield or Peter Simkins and Paddy Griffin. They look at the BEF's learning process uh, over the course of the war and the way that it carrier operations on the Western Front. Now, Monash reflected the calibre of the competent and technically proficient commanders of the British and Empire Armies in the final year of the war, and I think that's I think that's really the key here. And certainly he's on par with his peers such as Arthur Currie of the Canadian Corps and Ivor Max who commands 18th Corps in 1917 and eventually becomes the Inspector General of Training in the British Armies in France of the UK in 1918. I mean, it's always very flattering when British historians uh, particularly of the calibre of AJP Taylor like to say, hey, you know, John Monash, an Australian, was the only general of original creativity. But it's, I think we've moved on since then. I think we need to have a look at Monash as as uh, a highly competent commander that was emblematic of of, of British uh, British Corps commanders on the Western Front in 1918. And certainly um, in with that respect, I mean, Monash comes to command the Australian Corps at the right time of the war. He's in command of the Australian Corps for a little more than a month before the very successful attack at Hamel, which is carried out on the 4th of July 1918. Bearing in mind, this was the first major offensive action carried out by the BEF since the first phase of the German Spring Offensive in March and April 1918. And fortunately for the Australians, um, they were spared some of the heaviest fighting uh, that had taken place on the Somme and Arras during the offensive. They were still much further north. They were uh, up and around, uh, still in around the the Hollebeck sector in in Belgium uh, when when Operation Michael hit against British Fifth Army. Uh, And and even though they were involved, they came down south, um, the various brigades, were detached from their divisions to use to plug the various gaps along the front. Um, they never actually encountered such a, a heavy and sustained uh, attack. And I think the heaviest that the Australians encountered at that time was at Durnan Corps on the 4th of April, 1918. Um, certainly by the end of May, um, the, Australians, uh, the Australian Corps had, had sort of reconstituted itself and had been assigned a portion of the front astride the Somme, the Somme River. Raids and patrols along the Australian front gave every indication at that point that German morale was particularly low. And more important, that their defences were exceedingly poor. The German failure to achieve a decisive victory around this time, before vast numbers of the newly arrived Americans were in combat, really put the Allies in a better position than ever to deliver their own counter-offensive, and the German-held village of Le Hamel, um, with their poor, poorly erected defences, proved a relatively good place to start. Um, so, um, as at Messines, Monash plans the, the, uh, the action at Hamel quite fastidiously. Every detail of the operation was rehearsed in various conferences with commanders and staff of all. The services involved in fact there's no less than 250 officers were present at his final meeting on the 30th of June 1918 and could you believe it their agenda items included some 130 133 specific items and the meeting lasted four and a half hours um, I work for the Australian public service and, and that's actually you know that that's that's hard yakka at that in, in uh, at that point um, but as Monash told Rawlinson and here I quote the underlying principle of the conference was that everybody that mattered was present and had to explain his plans proposals and that where there was any conflict or doubt or difference of opinion a final and unadulterable decision was given then and there, and no subsequent fiddling with the plan was permitted. End quote. So I think I think that's really important. I mean, all these uh, this this part of this operational planning, it's not just Monash bellowing orders hither and thither, It's it's actually listening to the views and opinions of the experts um of his subordinates who are among his subordinates. And I think that's that's really quite an important part of Monash's charm or his success. Now there are some who claim that Monash invented the tactics that were employed at Hamel. And this This is is simply not correct because it overlooks the importance of the idea sharing that occurred amongst the experts involved in the battle planning phase of Monash's operations. Like all commanders within the British Expeditionary Force at that time, Monash deliberately tapped the rich vein of tactical learning and development that had occurred within the broader British Army during its four years in France. Monash benefited from the latest attack doctrine, ideas and technologies based on the successes and failures of previous engagements. Now this conferencing system used before Hamel and afterwards was designed to pull all these disparate ideas so that all possible problems could be foreseen and all possible solutions that were then considered. It's also to it's also really important to point out that none of the tactical elements that were used at this during the Australia Corps' attack at Hamel were being done for the first time. It's been claimed that Hamel was the first time ammunition had been dropped to frontline troops when in fact the German Air Service had done it in May, as early as May 1918. The first time the aircraft had been used to master the sounds of tanks that were forming up, which the Royal Flying Corps had done at Pol Capel in Belgium in August 1917, and the first time that smoke and gas had been mixed in a habituating barrage to try and trick the Germans into wearing their gas masks during the attack, which pretty much was what the British had been doing as early as 1916 on the Somme. Counter bombardments, creeping barrages and predicted fire were all perfected throughout the myriad battles on the Western Front throughout 1916 and 17. and certainly machine gun barrages were said to have been the touchstone of British expertise by, by mid-1917. The Australian experience in the Third Battle of Ypres demonstrated the effective use of firepower to support attacks with limited objectives. Most notably, the bite and hold battles of and Road, Polygon Wood, and Cinder throughout September and October 1917. Now, Monash was the beneficiary of these tactical developments, and certainly not the inventor. Now, needless to say, Hamel was a resounding success. The Germans were caught completely by surprise and all assaulting units took their objectives within 93 minutes. The Australian Corps and the British and American units that were also involved suffered 1,400 casualties, and German losses were estimated to be around 2,000, which included 1,600 1600 prisoners. Although relatively small in scale, Hamel was a practical demonstration of the attacking entrenched German positions using combined-arms tactics, a success that Monash himself attributed to the perfection of teamwork. Monash's final orders were made into two instructional pamphlets that were published by General Headquarters, which ensured that the tactical lessons of Hamel went back into the feedback loop of idea-sharing, planning and development for senior commanders to consider before the major Allied counter that ultimately began on the 8th of August 1918. After Hamel, Monash insisted to Rawlinson that the necessity of carrying out a combined arms attack on a much larger scale, since Australian patrols confirmed that shattered German formations opposite them had done nothing to strengthen their positions. If the front held by the Australians could be reduced, and with support with the Canadian its right, Monash was pretty sure that he could exploit the situation and achieve the stunning breakthrough that ultimately occurred during the Battle of, of Amiens. After the war, Monash tellingly felt that he'd been... And I quote: "The prime mover behind Fourth Army's success on the Black Day of the German Army during on the 8th of August 1918." But as a corps commander, Monash was removed from the higher strategic direction of the war and was unaware of the plans for a major Allied counteroffensive were already percolating higher up the chain of command. Seeing that the Australians possessed ascendancy in the Hamel area, and that the terrain was pretty much suited, well suited for tanks, Rawlinson resurrected plans to initiate an attack that would ultimately become the Battle of Amiens. The broader strategic vision for Foch and Haig also involved the French striking on the Marne, the American southeast of Verdun, and the British leading the combined Anglo-French attack east of Amiens. Rawlinson's 4th Army would attack on an 11-mile front, with the Australians and the Canadians assaulting south of the River Somme, and the British 3rd Corps immediately north of it. And as Charles Bean wrote in the official history, and here I quote, Monash did not devise the August offensive, though of course he was responsible for many of the details of the plan for his own corps, end quote. So just to go back to the AJP AJP Taylor's quote, Quote about Monash being uh, the only general of original creativity I mean it's not just Monash who's coming up with these these brilliant ideas um, it's it's also the lessons that are being um that are, that are percolating up to the top and having the opportunity to be influencing the those attack orders ahead of ahead of the ahead of, uh, of time but it's also Monash um, it, the, the war is much broader than Monash yes he's the right guy the right place the right time he's able to employ the best of the best um, attack doctrine the British has at that time but of of course, um, the success that ultimately occurred at, at, at Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 isn't completely off his doing.
0: One thing that struck me, and I didn't write this question until I learned a bit more about his background, was that he was, he was a civilian until 1914. And that, I think, was, was is really quite impressive. You don't get any any general, as far as I know, in the British Army from the Territorial Force writing for the same level that he did in the Australia Corps.
1: Yeah, and certainly that, that's what sets Monash apart from his British contemporaries. I mean, he has the skill Skills an experience of an engineer with a vast quantity of success behind him. And he tackles the same, uh, same problems uh, of, 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 of engineering to the fighting on the Western Front. He is a meticulous planner. That's what he brings to uh, his command of the Australia Corps. Uh, but then also, too, he's, he's not just doing things under his own book. He's receptive to the, the learning and development that had occurred previously. That means also, too, he's receptive to the, the ideas, views and opinions of his subordinates, who are the experts in their relevant fields, such as the Tank Corps, the RFC or the RAF at that time. He listens to the brigade commanders. Um, I mean, everybody under his command feeds into this this, uh, chain of information. In fact, Monash is notorious for having these conferences ahead of major attacks so that subordinates can feed into the attack planning that then is ultimately resolved before the attack orders are coming out. uh, So that all that sort of learning and development from below is fed into how, how it's ultimately played out on the battlefield
0: and that brings me to my my penultimate question what was the cultural impact of sir john monash in australia
1: monash remains a a really incredibly impressive figure in who's a central figure in australia's first world war story Um, he appears on the australian 100 dollar note there's two statues of him in australia there's bridges and towns and universities named after him right across the country i mean um uh ironically enough um one cannot study australian military history at monash university i think um that's that's quite an interesting one. Um, but through his victories, Monash had forged a reputation as a fiercely independent, capable commander who was noted for his meticulous planning and formidable leadership. And after the armistice, he was made Director General of Repatriation and Demobilisation, and used his extensive organisational skills to bring Australian troops home. So, in, aduce, in addition to his uh, his knighthood, his KCB, um, Monash was made Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St Michael and St George, and received a host a host of foreign awards and decorations for his services during the war. which which was something that he valued quite highly. Monash returned to Australia to an enthusiastic welcome in December 1919 and uh, in civilian life went on to become the head of the State Electricity Commission of Victoria and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. He was one of the principal organisers of the annual Anzac Day commemorations in Melbourne and oversaw the planning of the Shrine of Remembrance. And in further recognition of his wartime services, Monash was promoted full general in 1929. Um, Monash died relatively soon after the First World War in October 1931 and was given a state funeral where over 300,000 mourners came to pay their respects. He was a bold and charismatic wartime commander with an immense capacity for planning and preparation. And he certainly had the distinction of commanding the Australia Corps during their most victorious actions of the Western Front. I mean, Monash is certainly uh, an incredible individual who, after more than a century, is is well remembered by Australians. His cultural impact is is certainly quite significant. But there has been attempts in recent times to for to to recognise Monash even further. Um, there is uh, quite a, a debate that's being had in, in Australia over the last ten years or so, um, pretty much between scholarly um, academics or historians uh, versus the popular historians who like to portray Monash as the outsider on referring to his Jewish heritage, German and Jewish heritage, who, and I quote, won the war. And so much of the work that I've been doing on Monash has been trying to serve as some form of corrective in challenging some of those uh, myths and stereotypes over Monash. Um, some of them have, there has been recent attempts to have Monash retrospectively promoted to field marshal, um, which has not yet been successful, um, despite many attempts, um, certainly just on the belief that he was passed over for further decorations and glory, just owing to his German and, and Jewish heritage. But, I mean, none of that sort of really takes into consideration that even during the war um, there could only be one field uh, one field marshal uh, in the fighting on the Western Front, and, and that was Haig. Um, Monash had his career, had the war continued and had his career advanced further, he may have been up for an army command, but certainly uh, nowhere near the, the lofty status of, of field marshal. And despite all this, there's still more attempts to push for recognition despite statues and monuments. There's about eight books that are on Monash's wartime experiences. And like I said, um, towns, bridges, universities, uh, it never seems to be enough. Um, but certainly I think, um, I think we need to have a look at Monash of, of, of his remarkable achievements and uh, yeah, and, and, and start critically thinking uh, some of the, the discourse that's been peddled recently about Monash being the outsider who single-handedly won the war.
0: And finally, Aaron, where can people learn more about your research and Sir John Monash?
1: Uh, well, I've written a, a few things about Monash, a few little articles, most notably on the free online uh, encyclopedia, the 1914-18 encyclopedia. I've written a short biography of Monash there. I've written a few things in uh, Britain at War magazine and a few other uh, small articles on him. But but certainly, I mean, um, Monash is is certainly not a forgotten figure. And I think one thing that we, there probably needs to be less of is more books on Monash. Um, there's there's no less than eight, eight books available about his lifetime, some of spurious quality and historical scholarship. But I, I'd like to take this question to promote two works on Monash, not of my own, uh, that of Geoffrey Searle, his his excellent biography of Monash, which came out in about 1982. Uh, so be sure to, to check secondhand bookshops and online secondhand bookshops uh, for that. Also, Monash as military commander by Peter Pedersen, himself a battalion commander uh, with the Royal Australian Regiment, uh, was, was a, Peter uh, did his PhD in the late 1970s, uh, having gone through the military system himself. So at the time, Peter was best qualified to to write Monash's rise from brigade commander all the way through to corps commander on the Western Front. It's an excellent study. Um, I think the other books that are on Monash is Nothing But White Noise. Um, and I, pen on heart, really mean that. I mean, um, I think they are a spurious quality, those by Roland Perry and Peter Fitzsimons, people who are ultimately pushing an agenda. Certainly Monash is a central figure when it comes to Australia's Republican movement because it's the Australian general who ultimately played a leading role in the First World War Um, and um, yeah, I I think with that in mind best studies are are those of Geoffrey Searle and Peter Pedersen Aaron,
0: thank you very much for your time
1: No, thank you very much for having me on the show yet again, Tom
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code bis 21 95 Until next time